0: Welcome friends to another edition of the Out of Water podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me as always is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. We're coming now uh, in our study in the book of Genesis to Genesis chapter three. If you missed chapters one and two, those those are there in the back episodes of our podcast. You can go back and get caught up. But we're coming to Genesis chapter 3 this week, and as Sam and I were talking about this to sort of set it up, we realized that there's really no way (laughs) to get through all of the rich things that there are in Genesis chapter 3. So this is probably going to be part one of a
1: two-part. Yeah, it would be basically the question of why is the world so messed up is answered in one chapter, so it it probably warrants more than one episode.
0: probably does. (laughs) And we talked about a lot of different things. We've had an hour-long conversation before we even turned the recording on to sort of figure out what we were going to talk about. And uh, so I'm going to open up with this. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And I'm going to stop right there and say, Sam. (laughs) Sam.
1: Yes. Was this actually a snake? So in my mind, yeah, I think I think we have to go there. There's a lot of people who are tempted to kind of allegorize this out uh-huh. um, of existence. But I think what happens here is you have Satan who is a fallen angel, right? He is a, an angel that was in the service of God who was cast down in judgment. And suddenly we find him in the form of a snake. And we were trying to figure out what what does it mean when – when another being takes the form of an animal and we, neither We could up with the name. Yeah, we, <laughs> we Neither we, of us has vocabulary skills right now. It's not
0: the personification, it's not yeah. an anthropomorph, anthropomorphized, it's I I I just I I don't know. Yeah. It's a something.
1: It's it's serpent pomorphized whatever. Something like that. Okay. <laughs> but you have you have Satan, this chief accuser, this lead enemy of God that takes on this serpentine um, appearance. So uh, throughout the scriptures, he's going to be compared to a serpent, a dragon, um, all these sorts of things. But what we shouldn't confuse is here you have this spiritual being that is inhabiting uh, an animal. Um, so it's it's not like, hey, here's this magical, you know, serpents back in those days talked. No, it's it's a spiritual being that is inhabiting a serpent That is speaking. And you see the same kind of thing with Balaam's donkey. Right. Good example. But Satan isn't then confined forever to be in the form of a serpent. Right. You know, Paul will talk about how um, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Well, an angel of light isn't slithering around, you know. (laughs) It's – it's so Satan takes different forms, and he's going to come to you in whatever form is most attractive to you.
0: I mean, just as a uh, – I'm going to say a practical matter, but I don't know how you talk about spiritual beings in a practical matter. But just as a practical matter, um, we know that angels can appear in different forms. You know, I mean, we, we're told in some uh, parts of Scripture that angels just appear to be men, it's like just normal people, that they're able to take that form uh, in other situations the form is definitely not the same as just a man they have a a a more terrible or imposing appearance when that's the appropriate thing so the one thing that we can say is that a spiritual being like an angel and as you say satan was a fallen angel um they can take on whatever form uh they want to or is appropriate for that time so um so my answer typically is Sam. When somebody asks me, "Is is this an actual snake?" is I say, "I don't know that it's a it, that it actually was a snake that Satan like moved into." But I think that certain certainly it was a sense in which um, this this spiritual being, you know, mm-hmm. made himself or fashioned himself into that form. And the interesting thing is that, and this is something you and I talked about. Is that from our modern sensibility, as a result of this story, we've, uh, you know, our modern way of looking at snakes is that it's a snake in the grass. It's somebody that can't be trusted. It's somebody Mm -hmm. that's evil or it's serpentine in some way is bad. But actually in the culture of that time, it was exactly the opposite. When Satan took on the form of a serpent, Satan was choosing to take on a form that would have been perceived as the, as wiser and craftier and smarter and
1: better mm-hmm. than other creatures. Certainly at the time that Moses writes about this. So if Moses is writing Genesis, I mean, you got to think about the world, that this, you know, God's revelation of the beginning, what that looks like. I mean, he's writing having come out of Egypt. Well, the serpent is super revered. In Egypt, right? I mean, the, the Pharaoh is crowned with the mark of the viper. And in ancient cultures, you see, you know, serpents were actually revered, they were seen as super wise um, and, and clever you know we we were talking about before when before we started recording you know if you're walking along serpents are masters at camouflage you know you don't see them in the grass or or when you see them coiled up you think oh they're really small they can't harm me and then you know when they strike their their reach is unbelievable and so these these creatures are to to the audience that's hearing this coming from Moses serpents would have been what uh, had a lot of connotations that come from them, mm-hmm. and so I think God ordains that you know I think Satan inhabits a serpent out of out of the gates so that we can kind of understand that that 's part of his nature, really, like you know you look at a serpent and there 's something about them that 's really intriguing there 's something almost beautiful about a serpent, but when you know their character and how dangerous they are and how they 're sneaky and crafty you they scare you you should stay away from them so there's a lot communicated there
0: and and I would you know if I'm if I'm looking for a, an application of this too I would almost say to people that satan presented himself to eve in the in the wisest form that he could in a form that he knew would be accepted and that if there's a modern application of that to me it's that when the devil wants to trip you up he doesn 't come in the door looking like something you wouldn 't trust Correct. he doesn 't come in the door with this kind of i 'm slithering behind your desk and you 're going to be scared of me when the devil comes to you to cause mayhem and havoc it 's often in the form of the wisest thing you 've heard you know it 's like the the de- you know when, when paul says he 's transformed as an angel of light it doesn 't mean that he is the angel, an angel of light he appears as mm-hmm. an angel of light. And yeah. so when he comes to Eve as a serpent, he's coming to Eve in a wise, prudent, practical, uh you know, form, and that's the way I think he comes to us as well in modern times. So what I want people to take from Genesis 3, starting right off, is not this idea that that the devil is is hiding in some way, and he's, and he's being, you know, he's, he's slithering along. No, it comes to the form of you in terms of wisdom and something that you're going to respect. Those are the things you have to be aware of. So yeah. It's the, and and
1: in a pre-fallen world you they would have had no context for, you know, what we consider sure. of a fallen serpent today. Yeah. Um and and by the way, when when it's when we're told that Satan comes in this form of a crafty serpent, mm-hmm. you know, we immediately go, well, then snakes must be evil, right. <laughs> you know. But Isaiah 65 when it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, you know, we're told serpents are going to be there. Sure. Except they're they're going to be redeemed, right? like all the creatures.
0: Right. So then he asks Eve a question. So he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That, to me, is a very innocent-sounding question, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, again, he didn't come in and say, hey, Sam, what does God have against you? Why doesn't God love you? Why doesn't God—no, he comes in the door and he says, hey, did God actually say that you know, it just seems like an innocent question, and I think that that is also a sign that, you know, that the serpent, in this case Satan, was appealing to a part of human nature that he knew that he could reach, you know, in in Eve. Like he knew mm-hmm. he could get the answer that he wanted from her, But it, but it seems like an innocent question.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so what he's doing is right out of the gates, he's making Eve process this. Yeah, why doesn't he want me to do this? Yeah. You know, like, like he's holding something back from me. He's a tyrant. You know, he just wants it his way and he's holding this back. You know, and we still do this to this day, you know, like you know, yesterday I was I was doing some counseling and it's it's the norm these days that when you're doing premarital counseling and you come to the question, you know, prior to marriage, are you engaged in a sexual relationship? You know, well, virtually it seems like everybody well not everybody, there are some some cases that aren't but everybody's like, Well, of course, you know, it's twenty twenty and why you are say, you even
0: asking this question?
1: <laughs> yeah, really. And you say, well, well, let me talk to you about God's design for sexuality and marriage. And the what I have to overcome is right in there. You almost hear the enemy's voice saying, did God really say you can't enjoy that? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's the way it's interpreted. Oh, my goodness, this God, he's a tyrant. He's trying to keep me from pleasure and enjoyment. And that's exactly where Satan wants Eve to go with this. Yeah. God has restrictions. Well, he must not love you. He doesn't want you to be happy. Um, you should be able to do whatever you want, and that's kind of where he's going with us. And
0: I think also, you know, we've and we've talked about this already uh, in the first two weeks that we've, or actually three weeks that we've been working on this series, is that the the specific question of how is not as important or as interesting as the question of why. Mm-hmm. So here is the serpent coming to Eve, and he's asking the literal question: "Did God say?" He instead of saying. Why did God say, you know, Mm -hmm. God said that to keep you safe, to keep, to, to create boundaries for you that, you know, God told them something that was for their good, but he didn't ask that. He didn't ask Eve why God did that, or even why Mm -hmm. Eve thought God did that. Instead, he asked her the open-ended question, which allowed the human nature to kick in. Did God say, yeah, God did say, which then segues to this question, Sam, This was pre-fall, so there, there was no, there was no sin. Eve Mm -hmm. hadn't sinned, Adam hadn't sinned, but it seems as though the, the tendency to misinterpret God and the tendency to, um, the things that were needed, the building blocks of sin, Seems to be there even in the innocent state,
1: right? And and this is a question like theologians have argued over this, and we're <laughs> and we're going to settle it today. You and I forget <laughs> right. the rest of them. We're we got to figure it out. We okay. got to figure it yeah, out. Okay. But but this is the way that I really I it helps me to understand this because the question is well, if everything was perfect and it was before the fall, then where does Eve get this sense of unsettledness to where she's longing for something? um it seems right you know yeah. she's hey wait a minute i want that tree right uh, so so here's where i think we have to go with it and it's god's beautiful design right god has made us all in his image and with a desire to become more like him right and so inside eve inside adam god had this built-in desire to become more and more like god and so, so already out of the gates, they're like something, uh, they're longing for something more. I think that that's in Adam and Eve before the fall, not from a broken sense. It's, it's the same kind of sense that last week when we talked about how Adam is made and then he suddenly begins to realize that he's lonely and God right. says it's not good for him to be alone. That's not evidence of Adam being imperfect. The longing for something better was actually the sign that Adam was perfect. You know, he's being made in the image of God, and it wasn't quite fulfilled yet. So Eve is created, and Adam is created with with this deep desire to become more like God. And what you're going to see here out of the serpent is the serpent comes in and says, I've got a way you can do it. I've got a way that you can become more like God. And he begins to provoke her to think that to become more like God means there's nothing off the table. There is no restriction. You could do whatever you want with power, and the rest of the story is going to say, well, that's absolutely not what it means to be like God.
0: So then by extension, I could say that—or could I say that um, the desire to be like God isn't a bad thing?
1: No. No. Yeah. No, no, no! You're made with it, right? You're made with it, like, and that's the whole idea. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis? The kind of the weight of glory, like that's something that all of us have in us. This desire, you know, to to do something great, to be something great, and and so our temptation is to make it all about me. In a fallen world, it's make it all about me, make it all about me. Look how great I am, and the whole. One of the main ethics of the gospel is when you become small, that's when you are most glorified. Those who are humbled will be exalted, and those who are exalted will be humbled. And it's upside down. Satan says, you want glory? Take it. Take it. It's yours. You should have it. And the Lord says, you want to be like, God, let me show you what that looks like. Mm -hmm. It means laying yourself down. Mm -hmm. It means surrendering. It means submitting because God does all that for us. And you get a sense there's two radical paths of how you're going to become more like God. You can take the way of Satan, and that will bring destruction, but it's in you. Like, you want to be like God, but that's the absolute wrong way to go about it, and that's not how God is at all. God doesn't just seize power and reign with brutality and tyranny or anything like that. But that's what Satan wants you to think, you know, that you could Mm -hmm. just – God has – there's no cost to be in God. He just gets whatever he wants, and he's not willing to sacrifice or suffer. He's just, you know, whatever, you know, there's no submission. He just abuses the law, and that's not at all who God is. Mm -hmm. I'd like
0: to make a textual note at this point for those following along at home. Uh, (laughs) In the first five verses of chapter 3, wherever the word you appears, the Hebrew word that's being translated you is actually a plural form of the word. So the the serpent isn't just appealing to Eve. He's appealing to Eve and Adam. Like he's appealing to, to humanity there. Basically there's a only a few people, but we're appealing to humanity there. Yeah. And I think y'all exactly what I was about to say. It's like, <laughs> we, we in the South, we've got this covered. What the serpent said, did God actually say y'all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did, is that what he actually, so just for the record, it is a plural you there. It's not just her, because I do think that there is a tendency and it's a, it's a wrong tendency, but there is a tendency uh, and it's sometimes it's said in jest and sometimes less in jest, but this idea of it's all Eve's fault, Eve, mm-hmm. Eve tripped up, you know, and it's absolutely not the case. I mean, we're told a little bit further down in the story that Adam was there with her at any point, Adam could say, don't listen to him you know so the serpent had an audience of two when he was telling that it wasn't just eve she answered the question mm-hmm. um, now she she answers questions that says uh, verse 2 and the, we're only at verse 2 good um, and then, <laughs> hey this is going to this is definitely going to be a multi-part episode and the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but god said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, my first question is, Sam, is that what God said? Because I don't recall that being what God said. I think that she's embellished here.
1: So if you remember in Genesis 2, before God ever made Eve, he gives this command to Adam, and he says, you know, you can eat from any tree that's in the garden. You know, you, can ha- you have liberty to eat from all of them. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat from it you'll surely die. And so when Eve is then relaying this, back to the the serpent correcting him, she says, you know, that we should not touch it. And so she's adding to God's command. And so either, because Eve wasn't there to hear God say that, if you remember in Genesis two, she's not created yet. So Adam received this instruction, relays it to Eve, and either she makes the error, or Adam made the error in relaying it. Um, which one but, do you
0: think? Which which who's your money on? Who made the who made the mistake?
1: Man, women are just naturally better communicators. I'm thinking this is Adam. This is Adam. You know, I know in our home, <laughs> we're in a fallen world. Right. But in our home, if there's a miscommunication, you can you can place all the bets on Sam, not Laura. <laughs> so
0: so this is a situation where it's kind of like you're telling the kids, all right. This is this is fragile. Just do not break. In fact, don't even touch it, you know. Do you think that that's kind of what we're dealing with here that Adam was probably saying, yeah. all right, God said don't eat of this tree. Look, don't even touch that tree.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and and this is religion is notorious for doing this, right? So God will come and he'll give a simple command or a simple prohibition. And what religion will do, you know, if you're not allowed within, you know, a two inch circle, religion comes and says, Well then don't come five feet from that two inch circle, and it adds a whole lot of rules to make sure that you don't even get get close to that circle. Right. And so I think that's what's happening here. You know, I think there is a bit of we need to be extra careful, and so they add to that commandment to prevent even the temptation.
0: What, and what that shows me though is that there's a, that there are the seeds of resentment in that. You know, if that, there's something, there's seeds of something. (laughs) Either, either Adam thinks Eve can't be trusted or, you know, and so I'm going to tell her don't even touch it. Or Adam feels like, you know, God's being a tyrant, like we've been saying, and he's telling me, I can't even touch it. You know, that sort of
1: thing. So, and it may come because remember this is pre fall, so it might come from a good place where it's like, you know, if if you know that you can't withstand the temptation, don't put yourself in an environment where it's going to be harder. And so it might be, you know, really reverential treatment of God's command. You know what? We should just not even go near it, not even touch it, because you know we don't want to mess things up. Um, and that might be an agreed upon thing. We don't know, but it's interesting that she comes back and misquotes God. When they eat of the fruit of the tree, what we know is they don't immediately drop dead. Mm-hmm. The death
0: that takes place there is a spiritual death. It's the death mm-hmm. of our—it's it's it's something that happens apart from the physical plane. Adam didn't fall over dead. Eve didn't fall over dead. It's not—this isn't the Snow White story. The, the, the apple didn't choke them, that sort of thing. It's. It, and so I've always understood where where God is saying, you will surely die, that— it's 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 a way of God saying it's not an instant thing, but it's an inevitable thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, He says the day you eat of it, you'll die, and so like we're like, wait a minute, was God wrong? But but the idea, like you said, it's, it's 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 not about a physical death. And when we think of life, and and immediately, like right out of the gates, God is is teaching us what is life. You know, when we think of life, we think physical life. You know, I've still got blood circulating, I'm breathing in and out. This is life. And God is saying, no, 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 no. There is a life that is far more important, and it's your spiritual life. And so at the moment that Adam ate, he died. Mm -hmm. He, he He was separated from God in that moment. And even though his blood still circulated and he kept breathing, he'd spiritually died. And then it was just a matter of time before the body caught up. Mm-hmm. Um, the way i 've compared this before in, in a sermon I preached last year was it's it 's like the idea of you can grab go into a rose field you know with rose bushes and pluck up the roses and go home and give them to your wife now those roses are going to look really pretty right you know they're, right. they're nice they 're red they 're well shaped but give them a week and they 're going to be withered Why because they 've been plucked up. From the source of all nourishment, right mm-hmm. now they'll look alive. They'll have, they'll manifest themselves to be alive for a week or so while they're in a vase and water. But eventually they're going to turn brown and they're going to die. You know, roses which would normally live for years will die almost immediately a couple of weeks. Right, that's the same principle. At the fall, it's like humanity is roses that have been ripped up from the source of their nourishment. And yeah, we may look alive. But we're not getting the nourishment that allows for eternal life. We've been plucked up from the Lord. And so we're dying. Mm-hmm. Like death is coming. It's it's nipping at our heels. It's going to claim us, all of us are just roses in a vase waiting to turn brown.
0: That's interesting because then it makes God's statement a little bit uh, prophetic almost. God says, in that day, you will surely die, mm-hmm. which because because it's like God's looking forward saying, you know what? The day is coming. I know it's coming. I know you're going to do this. And when you do it, you're not going to instantly fall over dead. You're going to misunderstand. You know, it's like, that's what you expect is going to happen to you. But what I'm telling you is that just like that rose that's been pulled up, you're you will surely, you will eventually die. I feel feel like there's a a sense of inevitability there that God is saying it's going to happen. Even though it doesn't seem like it's happened, it
1: will happen. It's just a matter of time. It's like yes. if I came to you with a syringe full of cyanide and injected it into you. you know, it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty dark. Thanks, Sam.
0: I'm I'm not letting you near me with any syringes.
1: But but you might be able to look at me and say, Sam, why, why, why? You know, but your fate's done. Yeah. I mean, the moment that happens, the writing's on the wall. It's over. You're dead. Um. That's you a might thought. you might struggle around for a little while. That's, that's the same thought. idea. I know, in the It's garden. a pleasant
0: thought. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by yeah. the way,
1: I don't know why. We ever decided that this tree is an apple tree. I don't it, know either. I do that. I do that all the time. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't say it's an apple, does it? No. Yeah. Well, what if
0: it's like, what if it's a watermelon or a- I don't know. I have just always said <laughs> apple. Mango. I don't know. But you know, it's true. It doesn't say it's an apple tree. I just, I, I don't know. Somebody painted it that way, Sam, and yeah. I've just always true. You know, gone to the apple. Center.
1: You know, so, the only, we know that there were figs there. So yeah. it would make sense if we said figs, but nobody goes there.
0: Nobody goes. Well, they cover it,
1: themselves with fig leaves. So we know there's figs.
0: Well, okay, so let's be clear about this. A fig is not nearly as attractive to paint as an apple. So if you're making a painting of the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, an apple is bright red, round, easy to paint, shiny, looks good in the picture. I'm suspecting that it was a creative decision. Somebody from the marketing department of the ancient painting guild came down and said, no, 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 a little purple fig. No, 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 an apple. That's shiny and red. You'll like that.
1: (laughs) You know, there's actually a painting that goes back to 2200 B.C. It's called the Temptation Seal, Uh and I think it's kept in the British Museum, but it's really fascinating. So 2200 years before Jesus was born, or 800 years before Moses ever writes Genesis, there's this piece of artwork that dates back to the Mesopotamian world, and it's a man and a woman on either side of a fruit tree, and both of them are reaching their hands out to grab from the fruit, and over the woman's shoulder is a, a snake That is standing, speaking into her ear. And it makes you wonder, like, we don't know why that seal was created. We don't know what that artwork was capturing. But it's interesting that here's a man and a woman grabbing from a fruit tree. Your talk about artwork brought this to mind. With a snake standing over, speaking into the woman's ear. It's almost like, hmm, (laughs) whoever made that, I wonder what story they heard.
0: So then in verse 5, the, the serpent goes on and he lays before them that ultimate temptation. This is what we've been kind of working up to here because he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And in that right there, I see the great failing of of humanity is that mm-hmm. we want to be like God in a way that does not involve God. We talked about the fact that that Adam wanting to be like God wasn't bad. It's not a bad mm-hmm. thing to want to be like God. It's a we bad thing. We were made thing. to be like
1: God. Right. In fact, the New Testament, when it talks, I mean, what's the whole purpose of discipleship? We're told again and again and again that we are being conformed into what? The image of God. 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 Right. Like, we're, we're made to be like him.
0: But this is a situation where the serpent is saying, here's a way you can be like God, and you don't have to have God do anything for you. Yeah. This is all on you. You— can be like God without the help of God. And that's the big failing for humanity. That's at its core where humanity gets it fundamentally wrong and everything else builds out from there is that we want to be like God without having God. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we value being like God more than we value being with God. Yeah and it doesn't work. It never, ever works. And so right out of the gates you see in here, and this is really, really helpful um, in terms of kind of navigating through life because right out of the gate you see the serpent's calling card. You see Satan's calling cards and the ways that he causes us to stumble, and he hasn't changed his playbook. And all these thousands of years – he has not changed his playbook. Notice, notice what he does in this interaction with Eve so far. He comes to Eve and he says, did God really say? So what is he doing? He's making you question God's word. Right. He's, he's trying to make God seem like a tyrant. So you question God's motives. Is he really good? And then he does this thing where he says, you know, of course you're not gonna die. Well, why does he say that? What's that? He's provoking Eve to think something, right? The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. Well, it's there's a hint in there of, you know, if God truly loves you, you know, there shouldn't be consequences for this. Of course you're not gonna die. And then finally, he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be open. You'll be like God. He just doesn't want you to have that kind of authority and power. And so think through like every bit of temptation that comes in us. If we're in a season of suffering, what our own minds, what do they say? You know, you can just hear the serpent whispering to you if God really loved you you shouldn't be going through this right you know he's abandoned right. you he's forsaken you you shouldn't you shouldn't have consequences you shouldn't have to suffer he's a tyrant he's keeping you from joy why don't you just be like god seize control take the throne get rid of him take it and that is always the way he works and we live you know that's a, in our culture today, the prosperity gospel comes and says, you know, if really what they're teaching is the same thing. The prosperity gospel could be preached by Satan himself. Mm-hmm. And it comes like this If God really loved you, you should have nothing but prosperity. You should have nothing but ease of life. You should, everything should be sunshine and roses all day long. But the first time you ever sense that you're being restricted or something's not going your way or there's a consequence in your life, God must not love you. It's gross. Yeah, or or worse than that, my big you know, my big
0: problem with the prosperity gospel is that they're like if you have enough faith, then everything is going to go well and if something doesn't go well, it's on you. You just mm-hmm. didn't have enough
1: faith. And that's just as bad as God must hate you. I mean, is he, but it's the same. I mean, it's two know, two sides of the same coin because it's still God saying yeah, you're not good enough for me. Right.
0: Whichever direction you come to it, whether it's God deciding arbitrarily that he doesn't like you anymore, or whether it's you didn't have enough faith to please God and, and extract from him this benefit. Just the prosperity gospel and I don't get along. We did a whole podcast on that, by yeah, the way.
1: It's it's gross. It's I, I'm not I'm not I'll say beyond I'll go beyond just saying I don't like it. I will say the prosperity gospel is wicked.
0: Right. Let me make this distinction, though, for somebody that's listening. We were clear about this in, in our podcast. God wants you to be prosperous. Mm-hmm. He wants things to go well for you. It's not like God wants us to live in poverty or God wants us to suffer. Sometimes, God, God I'm going to get in, redo the whole podcast episode, but I just, <laughs> I guess what I want to say is that when we say that that we object to the idea of the prosperity gospel, and I don't mm-hmm. believe that God wants to be mean to us, that's not no, God's No, I
1: totally agree. So. Totally agree. But God will use... Sure. Hardships sure. to bring about something even more beautiful in you. He does it Absolutely. all the time. He did it in the case of the cross. I mean, right. think about Jesus, and this—you know—these two passages are so related. But when Jesus is in the wilderness, right? So here you had the first Adam and Eve, right, going up against the serpent, and they fail miserably. And so when you get Jesus, who's called the last Adam in the Scripture, when he shows up in the Gospels, one of the first things he does, like the moment that he launches his ministry, the first thing he does is God sends. Him out into the wilderness and he's tempted by this very enemy. And what happens? The enemy comes to him. And what does the enemy do? The enemy, it's all the same. He comes and says, If you really are the Son of God, you know, you've been out here fasting for 40 days, you're surely hungry, you're surely in pain, you're surely in misery. What kind of God would do that? If you really are the Son of God, hint, hint, if God really loved you, right? Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, You know, man will not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the next one, he takes them to the, the pinnacle of the temple, which is massively high, higher than the Statue of Liberty from there to the ground of the Kidron Valley. And he says, Throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. In other words, and he starts that by saying, If you are the Son of God, right? If God really loved you, he would never let you die surely the angels will catch you. You hear all the echoes, you shouldn't have to suffer. God would never let you die. And then what's the last temptation? Just bow before me and I'll give you all of this. What is that? Well, you can be like God. You can have total control. You don't have to go to the cross. You can have the crown without the cross, Jesus. It's the same exact temptations that he threw at even Adam in the beginning. And Jesus triumphs and says, no, there's something more important. The Lord is more precious than anything you can offer me. You can offer me kingdoms. You can offer me comfort. You can offer me whatever. The Lord is more precious to me than all of those things. And where Adam and Eve failed as they said, all of those things are more precious than the Lord.
0: Mm.
1: And by the way, we're talking about serpent – When Jesus then goes on with his life, one of my favorite things, and this was a realization at the end of Luke 4 when he gets done wrapping up the wilderness temptations, it says, and then Satan left Jesus until a more opportune time. And so you're like, when does he ever come back to Jesus again? When does that happen? Well, it happens with Peter. And so Jesus has just explained – all the things about his ministry, right? And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you know, to his apostles, he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're, you know, John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, blah, blah, blah. And so he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. And Jesus like explodes with praise. He's like, Peter, you get it, finally. (laughs) You know, know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, you know, the spirit did. And he's so excited that Peter has gotten this. And Then he, it's almost like in Jesus's excitement, he says, "Okay, let me tell you what that means. I'm going to be taken to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over by the chief priest, and I'm going to be crucified and betrayed and spat upon, and I'm going to be, you know, put to death. But on the third day, I'm going to raise again." And what does what does Peter say? You know, he's just said, "You are the son of the living God." Hear that echo from the wilderness temptations. If you are the son of God, Peter says, "You are the son of God." But where does he go with it i will never let you suffer i will never let you go to the cross jesus and what does jesus respond get Get behind me behind me satan and so what do you hear in that so jesus is wise enough here's god in the flesh and here's when he recognizes the voice of the enemy it's this if god really loved you you should never have to suffer he hears that come out of peter's mouth and what, it's, get behind me, Satan.
0: And he also hears it come out of Peter's mouth, his, mm-hmm. his follower, his disciple, his friend, mm-hmm. which goes back to what we were talking about with this idea of the serpent not being some evil cast thing. It's not, like the, it's not like the voice of the enemy is going to come to you from something that's easy to recognize. It's mm-hmm. like the, you have to consider what's being asked of you. And if what's being asked of you is, you know, did God say, does God love you? enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you find the voice of the enemy. It's not going to be able to say, oh, well, no serpents have talked to me today, Sam. You know, it's yeah. like, that's, that's easy <laughs> enough. I have not encountered a talking snake all day, so I'm good. Mm-hmm. No, the answer is that you know you may have heard the voice of the enemy coming out of, in this case, you know, Peter. Yeah, it's like yeah. Peter, that temptation from Peter.
1: And and it's not just, you know, because with Peter, it's like, here's a comfortable source. Here's my friend. But it also, you'll hear the voice of the enemy when you're in the midst of desperation. That's when he knows you're at your weakest. And so imagine Jesus hanging on a cross. And what does he hear when he's hanging on the cross? He hears all these people who are around him. And what are they saying? Come down this, and save
0: yourself if yeah, you're the son this, of God.
1: That's right. This man claimed to be the son of God. If you're the son of God, come down. Yep. Like, stop this. You know, he claimed that God loves him. You know, all these things. And imagine being Jesus at that moment where in in that moment, really, you're being severed from this relationship. And it would have been unbelievably unbearable to hear these things. Yeah. And yet he clings to the Lord's faithfulness and won't let go. And the enemy will always come to you. if If you're in that season of suffering where you're asking yourself, God, why? Why would you do this? Do you love me? Has your anointing left me? recognize that that is sourced from the enemy, cling to the promises of God, and know that just as he never would forsake ultimately his son, and he went to great lengths, far more than we're ever asked to do, the reality is he did all of that so that you would never, ever, ever be forsaken. Ever. Yeah.
0: So Satan has prepared this disobedience banquet and laid it yes. before Eve and then they walk right through they they walk right up and sit down at the table verse 6 mm-hmm. says so when the woman and s- eat their kumquat <laughs> saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes which i think is an interesting statement mm-hmm. um and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she saw that it was it was good food, it was beautiful to look at, and it had the desired effect. She took of its fruit, apple, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and I love this phrase, who was with her, hmm. and he ate. That, there it is, <laughs> Genesis 3, 6, that's when the whole mess got started in that moment, hmm. but it's, it tells us something about, like, like she looked at it, she saw that it was, it was obviously edible, she saw that it was visually attractive, and she saw that its effect was going to be desirable. And I looked at that for a second, and I thought, you know what? All of that tells me that the thing that I'm looking at will, will taste good, look good, feel good, it'll do a good thing for me. The only thing that tells me that's not good for me is God's Word. It's the mm. word of God saying, "Mark, this is not good for you." It's good. Every other indication, everything about it, to me, seems positive. Seems like I want this. But if it's God's word that says, "If you take that, you're going to die," I have to believe I'm going to die, even though all of the evidence is to the contrary, and I've got a serpent over here saying, "Surely
1: you will not die." <laughs> mm. yeah, I'm sorry. How <laughs> do my serpent hiss there? You know, we knew one of them was going to come out. This format of how Eve falls into sin with Adam is going to be repeated again and again, and it's very deliberate in the Hebrew, and we don't have time to get into it today, but pay <laughs> attention. The major stories of great sin that follow through the Bible, it's, it's somebody seeing something beautiful, right? You want it, you start you, – you desire it, and you take it, and you give, and you spread your sin – um, you find that pattern all over, the same kind of pattern. It's in the sin of David and Bathsheba, and it's in the sin of a Naboth's vineyard with, with Jezebel and Ahab. I mean, you see this show up all over the place, and it's all the same verbs. It's really interesting. Um, but one of the things that I love about this is Jesus is going to take this very same thing that's repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament and sin – And he's going to make it his redemptive moment. So, like, imagine him. He's at the Last Supper, right? And what does he do? He took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and then gave, right? And Mm -hmm. so, like, the same process, and he says, this is my body broken for you. The same process by which even Adam fell, Jesus is going to do and he's going to redeem with it. You know, Mm -hmm. he who eats this bread will have eternal life. And and so he's redeeming this very process to where, no, 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 he's going to take the food. Mm. He is beautiful. It's going to be him, and he's going to be broken, and he's going to give thanks, and he's going to give it away, and it's going to bring salvation, not cursing. Yeah.
0: This was a deception that was presented to both of them, mm-hmm. and both of them fell for it. So, um, I, and I don't know why that always seems so important to me, but just the fact that there's this idea that – you know what it is? It's this down through the ages. What's been the picture of Eve? The picture of Eve is – Yeah, way the, to go, Eve. Well, or it's the, she's, the, <laughs> she's the temptress. It's like she's got this apple, this fruit that you want. and She comes to you like this, like she's been, ooh, don't you want this? <laughs> Adam heard the serpent. Adam heard the whole spiel. Adam <laughs> was there, and Adam went, yep, yeah, sounds good to me. You know, I'll have one of those. Get, get, listen. Are you going to eat all that? Can I have that? Can I have your (laughs) bite? Are you are you done? Can I? I'll finish it. Is that okay? I mean, the typical guy at a table routine. Like, there's no person who's more or less capable of falling into sin. You know, we have that baked into us, man. It's there.
1: You know, and it. There's not an inherent righteousness in any of us. So and because and and part of this, you know, when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament lays the fall squarely on the shoulders of Adam, right? Uh, regardless of whether he was the first one to eat or not, like it didn't to God that wasn't important. He failed in his duty. Like you know, God had called upon him to protect and serve. And to care for and to look over his wife. And so, like, you go back to the original order of creation because it's very intentional the way this is laid out. Sure. And here in a minute, they're going to start blaming each other. Um, but notice what happens. When when God makes the original creation, you have God who's sovereign over all things. That's just indisputed. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's He's in charge, right? Then he decides to make man and woman in his image, right? And so they're equal in dignity but he does call the man to be the head of the household that seems to be you know god's truth throughout and so he's charged with protecting his home and so you have Adam and Eve together, equal in dignity in their position to carry out the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They're together. And then God says, okay, together you guys are going to rule over all the creatures. And specifically, one of the ones that he lists is that which creepeth on the ground. That right? be the
0: serpent. <laughs> and so
1: here we go. Like, so before we even get to this point, God's going, okay, I'm in charge. You obey me. I'm, t- I'm, I'm in charge together. You both are to reign over the serpent together. And what happens in the story? Flip, flip that model on its head, and now you have the serpent who is commanding the woman, right? And then the woman gives to the man, and he doesn't protect her, and then what does he do? Here in a minute, you'll see, he blames God for giving him her. right? And And so the whole created order, which initially was God, who makes man and woman with the man as the head of the household— that are together reigning over creation and all the creeping things, now all of a sudden the creeping thing has shown dominion over man and woman who are then in rebellion against God trying to rule over him. Mm -hmm. And everything gets thrown upside down. In Romans Romans chapter 1, when Paul is saying, okay, how do I define the fallen world? He makes it real simple. He says, men – worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Now, it doesn't have to be a snake. It <laughs> might be it might be your job. Right. It might be your bank account. It might be your reputation. It might be a whole host of things that are created things that you put ahead of the creator. We do this all the time. It's called idolatry. But this is what happens in the beginning. This is the first model of sin. I value stuff more than God.
0: They value stuff more than God, and they also believe that by the acquisition of that stuff that they can make themselves equal with God, mm-hmm. that they that they don't need God, that the stuff is there as a substitute and that it's, it's a sufficient thing. So after Eve and Adam have both eaten, verse 7 tells us, Then the eyes of both were opened, and the first thing they knew— <laughs> The first thing you knew, old Jed's a millionaire. Sorry. That's a, that's an a, a, a old joke. What's the first thing you know? You know, It's like, uh, old oh, Jed's a millionaire. We have both just shown our age. There are now – there are millennials listening to this broadcast that are just – What are they talking about? Exactly. No idea. <laughs> uh, it's an old TV show. Do you really show. think so? I, 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 it's, there's an old TV show. It's Beverly Hillbillies. You can look it up on Google. Um, you'll find out. So verse 7 says, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Mm -hmm. I have some questions. (laughs) I always have questions. But the, the first thing is... Why do you think it was that the first thing that they knew, like they've eaten this and their eyes were open, meaning I assume Mm -hmm. that they understood then good and evil the same way that Mm -hmm. God understood good and evil, because that's been the whole play up to that point. And so their first reaction upon understanding that was to perceive perceive themselves as both being naked. And I know they covered themselves physically, but I'm going to suggest and say that it probably wasn't their physicality that they no. were reacting to. In other words, when they saw themselves as naked, it wasn't just talking about the fact that their bits were on display, right?
1: Right. So, so this actually is if you go back to when when the Bible when God says, you know, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. The way we hear that in English is you know, when we hear knowledge, we think of you know I better study for a test and get some knowledge and put a bunch of facts in my head. Intellectual, that's, right? Yeah, yeah, intellect, very intellectual. That's not the con. That's not the the meaning of what the Hebrews getting at. In Hebrew, the word knowledge is very experiential. Um, so you get to the next chapter and and Genesis chapter four, it'll say, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived a child. Well. Adam doesn't walk up to Eve and start studying her, you know. <laughs> he, <laughs> he might know? have, I'm well, not saying he may saying have, he may have, have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But but it's experiential. It's like this deep intimacy. And so the idea is when they when they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's experiential. All of a sudden they're experiencing good and evil. Mhm. And so they're desperate for knowledge, and the Bible is tremendously poetic and beautiful here when it says, and the first thing they knew was that they were naked. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's like they wanted to show how mighty they were and that they could handle everything, and and we're going to be like God. Oh my goodness, this is so great. And then the first thing they knew after eating of the tree of knowledge was that they were totally deficient uh they, they they get done eating, and all of a sudden all of the grace and all of the liberty that they had known with God was gone mm-hmm. now all of a sudden for the first time ever they're aware of their own deficiencies apart from god mm-hmm. and you know I used to use this illustration and and still do sometimes where you know they weren't Oblivious to the fact that they were naked. That's stupid. It's not like Adam all of a sudden went, hey, wait a minute. We're you know. No. <laughs> the first it's... time they sat down on
0: something rough, I'm pretty sure they knew they were naked.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, but it's the difference of, you know, if I said to you, and this is going to be awkward, so brace yourself, but I said, if I said to you, you know, when you showered this morning, did you feel awkward being naked in your shower? And the answer is hopefully you know, not. Like uh, yeah, you no. know, like nobody's watching me. I'm, I i feel, feel perfectly fine. But if I, you know, if you were showering out of the traffic light of Broward and Federal, <laughs> yeah, all, all of a sudden, such
0: se- se- set of circumstances, yeah,
1: you're extremely aware that you're naked. So that, I mean, what the what the text is communicating is this is the first time. I've ever been aware that somebody was scrutinizing me. Before this I'd felt totally comfortable in my skin like nobody was judging me. There was nothing wrong. I I walked in liberty, but now all of a sudden the piercing judgment of God and their sin is now on them. And it's not just God's judgment when the fall happens, you know, we use this word sin and it's super archaic and people hear it and go, Oh, please don't say that word. It's it's awkward in public to talk about sin. But let's just redefine the word sin. Basically what happened at the fall is all of your instincts became inwardly focused. Every thought became about you, every desire became about you first. It was me, 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 me. And now all of a sudden they were aware. Of their deficiencies outside of God. And they gotta cover it up. It's like, oh my goodness, so, uh, this is I, I feel so ashamed. I'm I don't measure up. And here's here's the reality. Like w- we look at this and we say, oh my goodness, they sowed fig leaves. That's primitive. And the reality is we still cover ourselves all the time. We're yep. still doing this you know the reason why why you you know when you're out in public you only let people see you know as much of you as you want them to see but you keep most of your stuff hidden mm-hmm. because you fear man if they really saw who i was it wouldn't be good and so this has been the condition this is an amazingly insightful passage you know outside apart from god you know, it's not only that we sense that God is judging us for our shortcomings, which, by the way, outside of Christ is totally true, but we're judging ourselves, we're judging each other. Like, it's just constant self-examination, and we realize we don't measure up to standards, and so we hide, you know? We put up a false kind of profile on Facebook or Instagram. We present our best life to everybody else, but we don't let them know all the, the rotten sides of ourself. Mm. We hide absent the context or relationship. You know, it's like
0: when we talk about we hide things, you know, you don't hide things from people that become your friends over a long period of time. We get to know each other's business. You know, just and so it's personality. It's like, yeah, I know Mark. He's sarcastic and he's going to be skeptical and he's going to be, you know, it's like just you can mm-hmm. predict some of the things. But the fact is that you take that in a context of a relationship. It's like you mm-hmm. understand me to some extent and you know my motivations and you've seen me perform under a lot of different circumstances. And so when I say something sarcastic and somebody takes it the wrong way, what you would say to them is, that's just Mark. Really, honestly, he doesn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, That kind of thing. But but you can say that because you have this knowledge of me. You have this, this context of a relationship with me. Here's where we are with God, which is God knows every single thing about mm-hmm. us, everything. Even the things that we want to hide, he knows about us, and yet he still desires that relationship with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and this desire to hide comes only when we are not truly known. Even mm-hmm. when I'm imperfectly known by friends, my friends tolerate my stuff, but we are perfectly known by God. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there's no need for any shame. There's no need for any covering. God's the only one that can truly know us because there's stuff that I haven't even told you. I know that seems odd as we've been friends for a while and I've told you many things. There are things God knows.
1: <laughs> yeah. And beyond even Tracy, things sure. that you don't even realize that she doesn't know. But 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 in this and the whole narrative, I mean, what you hear is... You know, this this idea of man saying, you know, I'm going to be like God, and right. the moment you try to take the wheel, the moment you try to seize the throne, it is inevitable that you're going to find that you're deficient, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, it's going to backfire. You're not meant to be God. You're meant to be made into the image of God. You're meant to be like God, but you're not made to be like God, and if you try that role on, you're going to fail. And then the other side of it, you know, we were talking about liberty. There's this great dichotomy that Pastor Tim Keller out of New York puts up, and I love the way he presents this. But he says, you know, every human being is made with a desire to be fully known and to be fully loved, and we usually have to pick one or the other. Oh, because yeah, because. That's good. Because the reality is if I let you fully in, Mark, and you get to see all my nastiness and you get to see what a broken, depraved idiot I am, really, there's a good chance you're going to be like, eh, I'm not sure I want to be friends with you anymore. <laughs> you know, like I've seen the darker sides of you, and you know what? Like I'm going to keep you at arm's length, and so we can be fully known, but man, it's going to be hard for people to fully love us or – we can pretend we can put on the fig leaves and we can put on the show and we can run and you know mask ourselves and be what everybody wants us to be which is what most people do and you'll you'll get approval you know you'll you'll get you'll get people who clap for you and who want to be around you when you're who you think they want to be you know but the reality is is they're loving something that's not you you know and and so this idea where chapter 2 ended where it said and they were naked and unashamed That is who you are in Christ. You are fully known, every blemish, every flaw. I mean, it's like just imagine yourself being examined in this uncomfortable posture where he's looking over your moral and spiritual and physical and every part of you. He's examined you top to bottom, knows everything about you, and sings with rejoicing over you. Like you are fully known and absolutely fully loved more than you can possibly imagine and so that lets you walk in liberty that I no longer have to live this life trying to please and prove myself to everybody because in Christ you're proven. Like he, he has accepted you, and it's not based on your performance. It's not based on whether you're good enough or your circumstances or whatever. He loves you because he loves you. And he would he would give his own life on a cross to be with you. There's no greater price tag that he could put on you. And he sees everything about you. It, it should make you. Like, there's a reason why it's called Amazing Grace. We should look at how radically he loves us, and it should blow us away. Mm-hmm. Like, when I think of all the mess and all the ways that I fail him and all the ways I fail as a husband and as a father, and I mean, I could beat myself up bad. And then I think... Why in the world would you do that for me yeah. why would you Why would you suffer like that for me and then claim that you sing over me and even after all the suffering and like that should be exhilarating that should change the way we live and by the way, if the God of the universe can look at all of my flaws and scars and mess and shame and everything else and sing over me man, it gives me confidence to walk out into this world not needing to win everybody's approval all the time. There's freedom. If I have the approval of God Almighty, I don't need the approval of Mark Lottenschlager. Your opinion doesn't matter quite as much.
0: Well, we'll let that stand as our last word from Genesis chapter 3, the first part of Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if this is going to be, Sam, a two-part or a three-part. <laughs> we'll have to see how—we, ladies and gentlemen, we meant to get further in the chapter than we did. Shocking. Shocking. We had—I <laughs> had questions, and Sam had things to talk about, and we didn't get far—as quite as far as we thought we might. Um, but uh, we are going to let that stand as as the last word for today, but we will be back in Genesis chapter 3 Uh, next week. We hope that you've enjoyed this. Um, It's had you think about this story again and about all the great gospel meaning that's in there, because literally, as you heard us going through this, and the gospel is in every verse, every image, it's all just pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to the redemption. We'll be back next week to find out what happens with those fig leaves. We hope that you'll join us then.